0: podcast is a ministry of the First Baptist Church of Diana, Texas. If you're in East Texas, you can gather with us on Sundays at 10.15 a.m. You can find more episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on our website, www.fbcdiana.org. Thanks for listening. Acts chapter 12 is where we're going to be today. If you brought your own Bible, then that'll be... Uh, great, you can use that one. You'll be familiar with it. If you didn't, there should be a hardback black one like this uh, in a seat back nearby. And if you're looking for Acts chapter 12, it is on page 866. 866. As you're turning there, I'd like you to consider with me for a moment uh, as we are a room full of uh, probably most everyone in the room is uh, uh, native to uh, America, in other words, are American citizens by birth. This is the only country you've known. I wonder, especially as Americans, those those of us who are, uh, do you expect your local or national government to allow for, to arrange for religious liberty? Is that an expectation that you have? Do you know that many Christians and churches in the world today live under the rule of governments that are openly hostile to Christian beliefs and practices. According to Open Doors USA, an organization that has monitored Christian persecution in the world since 1992, there were nearly 5,000 Christian martyrs in 2021. Most on the continent of Africa and in particular in Nigeria. In Pakistan, a common persecution against Christian women, in particular, is to force them to marry non-Christians. In China, Christians can be detained without charges and even imprisoned for holding to certain historical Christian doctrines and practices. And more than 7,000 Christian churches in China have been forcibly closed and disbanded over the last two years. You can read more statistics like this in the news article that came out in Christianity Today in, uh, in January. To state it bluntly, I am very thankful for the freedoms that Christians have had in the Western world, and especially in America over the last couple of hundred years. Uh, I'm so thankful for these realities. But when I read history, not just church history, but history in general, And when I read some of the current news headlines, I'm forced to admit that religious freedom is not the norm. It is the exception. It's the rarity. In fact, I'm often confused when I think about how often the New Testament warns Christians to expect persecution and to prepare to endure it. I think to myself, this isn't my experience at all. brothers and sisters, in many ways, religious freedom has been a wonderful blessing. And again, I'm so thankful for it. But I wonder if it doesn't also come with some downside. How many of us are prepared to face real persecution? How many of us are able to parse out the differences between our biblical convictions and our cultural preferences? That stuff that makes us Christian, Christian, and that stuff that just makes us American. How many of us are ready? Uh, already know which hills to die on, or which ones to fight for, or which ones just to let go, because they're really not that big of a deal. Well, today we're going to read and consider a passage of scripture that highlights real persecution and God's preservation. We'll see that God is the true sovereign over all of this, and we will also see where our hope should be as Christians who live in a fallen world, in a post-Genesis 3 world. The context is the ongoing expansion of Christianity, Christ's kingdom in the world, beginning in Jerusalem, the gospel goes out, many people are converted. The gospel has traveled as far as Antioch to the Gentiles, total non-Jews who respond positively to the gospel. And there's a church that's planted there in Antioch. And even we, we left off in our last time in Acts with uh, the church there in Antioch these Gentile Christians sending back financial aid to anticipate the difficulties that were going to be faced by the church there in Jerusalem. And then Luke is picking us back up on what's going on there in Jerusalem and in the further, the the more broad community outside in Judea. The word of God, every step of the way through threats from within and threats from without, the word of God and the kingdom of Christ seem to be, as Luke is unfolding the book of Acts, unstoppable. And it seems to me this is really getting to the heart of what our passage is today. One of the ways that we show respect for God's word is we stand while we read the primary passage. Would you mind standing with me as I read Acts chapter 12, beginning with verse 1, and I'll read all the way down through verse 25. Remember the context, gospels expanding, church being persecuted, the word still growing, the church still growing Focusing back now on Jerusalem. About that time, Luke tells us, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now, when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea, Immediately the angel and angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give glory, give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Thank you, God, for your word. You can all be seated. The main point that I'd like to draw out of this text, uh, being uh, a Sunday upon which we intend to do expositional preaching, I intend to do expositional preaching today. Uh, that is where we look at the text of Scripture and we try to understand what is, what is God saying here? What does the Bible intend for us to understand from this passage? I think the main idea that is intended in this passage, as part of the entire unfolding of the book of Acts, is that the word of the true king always prevails even when it appears to be weak in the world. If you want to write down that main point, you're welcome to do that. It's right there on the screen behind me. You can also see it inside your bulletin on the right-hand side. Uh, so it's already there for you if you're having trouble writing it down as fast as you'd like. Uh, if you want to take notes, you're welcome to do that. Uh, there'll be four points today. State, sanctioned, persecution, divine, deliverance, rescue reported, and then the words of two kings. Basically, we're just going to walk through the passage together noting what we see, and I'll aim to make some application as we go. Let's look at point number one, especially this first section, verses one to five, and see the state-sanctioned persecution that's on display in our passage today. In verse one, Luke says it's about that time that Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. So if we're trying to understand what's going on here, one of the first questions that at least comes to my mind as I'm reading through this passage is, who is Herod? What's the significance of him in this story? Well, this is Herod Agrippa I, the king of Judea at that time. Agrippa's uncle was Herod Antipas. There were a lot of Herods uh, in the Bible. Uh, Herod Antipas was one who governed Galilee for a while. Herod Antipas, maybe for those of you who grew up going to Sunday school or or maybe you've heard a lot of Bible stories, you remember this was the guy who who hated and even envied John the Baptist a little bit. He had him imprisoned for a while. And then after this seductive dance by his niece, he asked her what she wanted. He'd give her anything. uh, And it was Herod's head on a plate. That's what she, uh, sorry, not Herod, but John the Baptist's head on the plate that she asked for. And that was the Herod who gave it to her. That's Herod Antipas, the uncle of the Herod we are reading about in our passage today. Uh, Herod Agrippa's granddad, our Herod's granddad, was Herod the Great, the king of Judea at the time of Jesus' birth. Uh, This was an even more infamous Herod. Uh, This Herod the Great feared the rise of the one who was born king of the Jews, and so he had all of the boys, two years old and younger, in Bethlehem murdered because he wanted to eliminate this infant or toddler child that he was looking for and couldn't find. One can only imagine the heartbreak of such a widespread and horrific violent act. Our Herod, Herod Agrippa, had come to power by family lineage. He's related to these others who have a sort of uh, heritage of the throne, but also by his political cunning. Uh, There was no uh, easy access to a place of authority, uh, you didn't just get it because you were of the right family. You also had to maneuver quite well. And Herod Agrippa was good at that. Uh, it seemed that he was able to reclaim and even rebuild, in many ways, the kingdom of his granddad. So Herod the Great, once again, being the ruler over uh, the area of Judea. So Jerusalem and Judea was like the larger uh, region outside of that Uh Herod Agrippa seems to be the one who was able to sort of recover all of that and rebuild it to a certain extent. So he is one who was politically cunning in order to arrive at the position that he had, but he also was a wise politician in the way that he was able to to arrange things as he had control of them. In fact, right here in our own passage, it seems that some of his political cunning is on display. It seems that that's the very reason why he was persecuting the church in Jerusalem the way he was. We'll get into a bit more of that in a second. This, though, in the book of Acts, as it unfolds, is a new kind of persecution against Christianity. Verse 1 tells us that Herod Agrippa, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. And then verses 2 and 3 tell us a couple of the details about the some who belonged to the church. So it doesn't list everyone that Herod killed or persecuted. But in particular, it mentions two that were the target of his persecution. Now, this persecution is new uh, on the unfolding of the book of Acts, uh, not because opposition or persecution is new, but it's a new kind. Uh, So there was persecution from those who were in the Jewish leadership against the Christians, Jewish people who were converting to Christ in Jerusalem uh, and in, in Judea. And Saul, Paul, was one who even took that persecution further out as far as he could until the Lord converted him, of course, uh, but this was state sanctioned persecution. Uh, this was not by the not by the laws of uh, those who were Jewish leaders trying to maintain their leadership and and squash this this Christian sect uprising, but this was the the political civil leaders in charge of of the known world at that time, and now these are the ones that are coming after Christians. well, verse two, again describing some who belonged to the church, this description here, tells us that James, the brother of John, was one that was killed by Herod. This James was a fisherman who Jesus called to be one of his disciples, Matthew 4 and elsewhere in the Gospels. He was also named among the 12 apostles in Acts chapter 1. Uh, So this uh, this was one of the main Christians of the New Testament church who was martyred underneath Herod's rule. And we're told in verse 3 that Herod also arrested Peter. Verse 3 says that Herod saw that it, the murder of James, pleased the Jews. And this is what prompted Herod to proceed with further persecution. As I said before, political maneuvering seems to be Herod's uh, motivation here. Verse 3 also tells us that Peter's arrest was during the days of unleavened bread, which concluded with the Passover in verse 4. And in verse 4, Luke says that Herod's plan was to hold Peter until that Jewish festival was over. And until then, Peter was kept in prison, verse 5, guarded by four squads of soldiers, verse 4. It's worth noting here that Peter's situation was hopeless uh, from by all accounts. That's Luke's point, I think, in fact is that Peter was hopeless. Herod Agrippa was not delaying Peter's being brought out to the people. In other words, his martyrdom. Herod was not delaying Peter's martyrdom because he wasn't quite sure what he was going to do with him yet. He was waiting for the opportune time, the politically expedient moment when it would benefit him most. He knew exactly what he was going to do with Peter. He knew exactly what he was going to do with Peter, and he made sure that nothing was going to come in between him and his plan to bring Peter out on the day after the Passover. Herod put Peter in between 16 soldiers, four groups of four, four squads, each taking shifts so that no distraction would be possible. Once again, Herod knew exactly what he was going to do with Peter. John Calvin commented on this passage in verse four, and he said, Luke declared by circumstances that Peter was, as it were, shut up in his grave so that it might seem that he was quite past hope. But verse five tells us that there was something else going on, that there was a praying church. Verse five tells us, so Peter was kept in prison, awaiting his inevitable execution. But earnest prayer was uh, for him made to God by the church. Now, Luke doesn't tell us what they prayed for. Uh, but I can speculate on at least a couple of things. The first thing that comes to my mind, what they might have been praying for was Peter's release. This would be my prayer if I was in Peter's shoes. Oh, please, God, let me out. Don't let that thing that seems like it's going to happen happen. And this is what I would want other people praying for me. This is what most of us are prone to pray when we're going through any kind of difficulty. Oh God, please make it stop. But they also could have prayed that Peter would be resolute, that he would persevere in faith, even as he faced the pain of death. This is a common prayer of fellow Christians, for Christians facing persecution. God help him or her persevere. What a horrible situation for Peter. All he had to do is recant his faith in Christ and declare himself a faithful son of Israel. And maybe the crowd that Herod was trying to please would come to his defense. Peter might spare his own life, but what of his soul? Is Jesus really the Messiah? Is he the one and only mediator between God and man? And if so, then how can Peter loosen his grip on his only hope in life and death? Just imagine the quandary. What a blow to the church in Jerusalem. Peter, seemingly their chief spokesman, their chief evangelist, their chief minister, their chief leader. He's awaiting persecution. And what if Peter decided that it wasn't worth it? If Peter recanted, or if he died in some shameful way, acting in a display of Hopelessness and unbelief at the last moment. What would the rest of the church do? Did Peter really believe that stuff he was preaching to us? Was he going to now live out what he had called so many of us to do and cling to Christ? Whatever the content of their prayers and whatever the intent of King Herod, it seems to me that Luke wants his reader to know that God is the true king and God's word prevails over. Everything. That's what our whole passage is about. And that's what this introduction is setting up. So point number two, moving on in the passage now to verse six and and beyond. The divine deliverance that we see here. Divine deliverance. The first thing that I noted was that it it was the very last hour when deliverance comes. See it there in verse six. Luke says, now when Herod was about to bring Peter out, when Herod is about to bring him out for his martyrdom, on that very night, so the night before the morning, Herod is going to roll Peter out, have him executed in a celebration of how great Herod is for the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem and in Judea. That very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the doors were guarding the prison. He's still locked up. Peter's surrounded by death. The next morning he's going to die. And all around him are soldiers and chains and an entire prison structure that's meant to hold him down until the executioner's sword is laid upon him. Wouldn't Peter be thinking, if God was going to rescue me, he would have done it already. And if God is going to rescue me, if he really is going to do it, why in the world is he waiting until the last minute? Well, we see, beginning in verse 7, the angelic rescue into that hopeless scene. Peter's inevitable demise is on, he's on the cusp of it. In that last moment, we're told in verse seven, an angel of the Lord stood next to him. An angel of the Lord stood next to him. Verse seven through 11, God then shows his total sovereignty over every aspect of this whole thing. Think about the way the details unfold. At the end of verse seven, Luke tells us that the chains that bound Peter's hands fell off him. God is sovereign over chains. In verse eight, the angel makes time for Peter to gather up his stuff. He's, he's able to be so free, he's, he could put on his shoes and get his cloak and gather up your stuff before we go. In verse nine, we read that Peter was so sure of his impending execution and he was so free to move about the prison that he thought he was seeing a vision. Peter didn't even believe this was real. It couldn't possibly be real. I'm gonna die tomorrow morning and uh, I'm able to move so freely about, there's no way this is a real thing. Verse 10 says that the angel led Peter past the first and the second guard. And then the iron gate that leads into the city, it opened up on its own. God rules over chains and guards and even prison gates. Once again, the way that Luke is telling the story is just demonstrating God's complete and total sovereignty over every aspect. He controls everything. He has power over everything. Nothing even resists a little bit. But this miracle is for a purpose. And verse 11 concludes this divine deliverance with a truth statement, It's. it seems to me it's the why behind God's rescue of Peter. Verse 11 says, When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Friends, it seems to me worth noting that when God performs miracles, They are never magic tricks. God is never merely entertaining us. He is always teaching us. And what's the lesson for Peter in all of this? What's the lesson for the church in Jerusalem in all of this? What's the lesson for Christians throughout the ages in all of this? Well, it seems to me that the lesson is that no earthly king and no raging mob is able to do anything outside of the Lord's will and power. No earthly king and no raging mob is able to do anything outside of the Lord's will and power. Peter was sure in verse 11 that God had rescued him from the hand of Herod. God had rescued him from Herod, the king who has all the power in Jerusalem and in Judea who has the power of life and death over Peter. God rescued him from that. And, verse 11, from all that the Jewish people were expecting. God rescued him from the mob. Now, this is not to say, when I say that I I believe the point of this uh, lesson, this miracle that God has performed here, and really a repeated refrain throughout the scripture, that no earthly king and no raging mob is able to do anything outside of the Lord's will or power This is not to say that everything that kings and mobs and politicians do is good or right. That's not what I'm saying. We ought never to excuse or to justify sin or errors because, after all, it's God's will that it be this way. I don't mean to excuse sin or error. No, indeed, let me spell it out for you. Herod was dead wrong for opposing the church in Jerusalem, he was a pagan ruler with a wicked and idolatrous heart, and he was at war with Christ and his people, and he was wrong for that. The Jewish mob was dead wrong for demanding the blood of Christians. The Jewish leaders and most of the Jewish people were not only in rebellion against God in that they were not obeying the law of Moses, which God had specifically and graciously given to them and no one else, but they had also flexed their adulterous muscles against the very Messiah, that God had sent for their salvation and for that of the whole world. They schemed to have the Messiah God sent for their salvation. They schemed to have him murdered in the most shameful possible way. And they were dead wrong for it. And friends, every sinner, whether school teacher or accountant, whether little league coach or project manager, whether religious or spiritual or atheistic, every sinner is dead wrong for his or her rebellion against God and his right rule. When I or you and others think or act or speak in sinful or idolatrous or God-denying ways, we and others are to blame, not God. We and others who sin are wrong. And yet the Bible clearly teaches us That God is sovereign over everything, both the good and the bad. A couple of passages will point this out in clear display. In Lamentations 3, God spoke to the prophet Jeremiah saying, Who has spoken and it come to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and bad come? The rhetorical question, it has the implied answer of, well, of course, it's from the mouth of God that both good and bad come. Isaiah 45, verses five to seven, says it even more clearly. Through the prophet Isaiah, God spoke, I am the Lord and there is no other. Beside me, there is no God. I form light and create darkness. You say, oh, that's poetry, Mark. I make well-being and create calamity, God says. I am the Lord who does all these things. Such passages are only a portion of the clear and repeated testimony of Scripture. God is God, and he does as he pleases. God rules as supreme over all creation, and his will is always carried out through the thoughts, words, and deeds of those who love him, and through the thoughts, words, and deeds of those who hate him. His will is always carried out. An old Baptist confession that goes by the second London uh, title says that the God is the good creator of all things, In his infinite power and wisdom, he does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures and all things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence. According to the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. In short, Baptists, Christians for a long time, have been confessing the clear biblical teaching that God is the true sovereign over everything. He rules all things. Pagan kings, raging mobs, and everything in between. It is not for us to know the ultimate reasons why God does all that he does, why he raises this king to power, why he rescues this Christian as he did Peter in our passage why he overthrows that nation or why he suffers that Christian to endure the worst persecution. God doesn't always tell us the why. I think God rarely tells us the why. But it is for us to know that God is the true king. That he is the one to be trusted in that he is working out his good and wise will in all of life. And we must also remember That there is coming a day when God will address all injustices. No injustice, no persecution, no raging mob, and no pagan king is going to go unaddressed by the true king of the universe. Point number three the rescue is reported. There are two rescues reported, or two, two reports of the same rescue in our passage. But let's first consider the Christian report. Verse 12 begins this report where Peter goes to some, someone's house by the name of Mary. She's the mother of John Mark. And there were gathered in her house many, and they were praying, uh, seemingly praying for Peter. Rhoda is the girl who hears Peter at the door And in her joy, she didn't open it, but instead she ran inside and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. For some reason, the Christians praying for Peter, they didn't believe Rhoda. So it's curious that Rhoda didn't let Peter in. It's even more curious that potentially what they're praying for is Peter's rescue. And when Rhoda comes in and says, hey, Peter's here, they're like, no, no, it can't be. It's not possible. When they do finally see him, though, after Peter keeps knocking, verse 16 says they were amazed. An incredible understatement, no doubt. And then Peter describes to them all that he had just experienced, how the Lord had brought him out of prison, verse 17. And then Peter told those Christians who were praying there at Mary's house to tell these things, tell the story of what just happened to me, tell it to James, a different James than the one who was beheaded in verse 2, and to the brothers, probably referring to the other apostles, but could be the whole church there in Jerusalem. Certainly it was something everybody and all the Christians in Jerusalem were going to want to know. And finally, we're told that Peter left. He went to another place. This very likely was to avoid drawing attention to the Christians gathered at Mary's house to pray for him. Because when Herod realized that Peter wasn't in prison anymore, he would certainly not be happy about it. And he wouldn't be happy about anybody else who was associated with that whole thing. Indeed, this is what we see happening. So the second report, same rescue. The report comes to the Christians and they are joyful and amazed. The report comes to Herod and well, not so much. He receives the report report in verses 18 and 19. Among the soldiers, we're told in verse 18, there was no little disturbance over what had become of Peter. (laughs) Can you just imagine? We had him locked down. You were supposed to watch him. No, it was you. Even Herod himself, we're told in verse 19, search for Peter and he didn't find him. And after concluding that Peter had in fact escaped, Herod in verse 19 were told ordered that the soldiers who were supposed to watch him should be put to death. There does seem to be a common practice in first century Rome of prison guards forfeiting their own lives if the prisoners they were supposed to watch got free. But there is no doubt that Herod was furious that all his precautions to hold Peter still long enough for him to bring Peter out to have him murdered so that he could gain in, in political favor with the Jewish leaders there in Jerusalem. All that had come to nothing. And no doubt, Herod was furious. So he very likely was reacting uh, to his in his anger to those soldiers to this embarrassing development and he killed those who were responsible. And then we're told, in verse 19, that he, uh, Herod went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent some time there. So he kills the guys who are responsible for this politically embarrassing reality, and then he jets for a little while to get away from whatever political fallout there might be. These two reports serve to move Luke's narrative forward. And once again, Luke means for the reader to see a sort of comparison, I think, in this passage. There is an earthly king with political cunning and violent power, Who's willing to use both to elevate himself and even to make war against Christ and his people in the world? And then there's the true king, whose kingdom appears weak and powerless, especially against the onslaught of persecution. But the true king is actually growing and expanding his kingdom right in the face of every opposition the world can bring against it. This leads us then into point number four, the last bit. Of our passage this morning. We see the increase and the word or the voice of the earthly king, and then we see the increase of the word of the true king. The increase and the word or the voice of the earthly king starts in verse 20. Luke makes reference to the geopolitical maneuvering of the day, which doesn't really matter that much to us, except to tell us that Herod was actually gaining in strength and influence. Basically, the cities of Tyre and Sidon were self-governing, but they depended on Judea, Herod's kingdom, within and under the greater authority of the Roman emperor. They depended, Tyre and Sidon did, on the food supply that Judea would provide for them. And uh, political uh, relationships were not so great at that time between uh, Tyre, Sidon, and Judea. So, verse 20 tells us that Herod was increasing in power since the people of Tyre and Sidon were having to persuade him by political networking toward peace. Just imagine how the Christians in Jerusalem and in Judea must have felt to hear about, possibly even see, what Herod was gaining, to see him on the political ascent, even after. He's unleashed such violent persecution upon the church in Jerusalem and in Judea. Is God only going to rescue Peter just to let the widespread persecution continue? Well, the fact is that all of the apostles suffered a martyr's death, except for John, but it wasn't for the lack of trying. But Luke's point in this narrative is not that God always delivers his people from persecution. No. The New Testament warns Christians repeatedly to expect persecution in the world. Rather, Luke's point in this unfolding narrative is that the word of the true king always prevails, even through persecution, and even when Christians appear to be killed all the day long and regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Romans chapter 8. It's not that God makes it where that stuff doesn't happen. No, no. It's that God preserves his kingdom and his word stands, even as such horrible things happen. In verses 21 and 22, the whole scene comes to a climax. We're told on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes. Extra biblical sources uh, tell us that uh, very likely the robes that Herod wore that day were sewn in with silver and gold, actual, uh, the actual uh, materials themselves, such that when he walked out in the daylight, he shimmered, glittered, shined. He then took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration, a speech, a public address to those representatives from Tyre and Sidon who came to see him in Caesarea to plead for his benevolence. And as he's giving his oration, the people shout out to him. This is the voice of a God and not a man. The whole display is to show Herod's ascent to the status of a deity. And his word was said to be divine. Think about if the, if the story stops there. Herod is appearing as this God-man who is indeed raised up, who's politically powerful, who's coming against the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and is doing damage. And the indication that we get as we read is that Herod loved every second of it. But his word did not prevail. The episode doesn't end there. Verse 23 begins to tell us about the increase of the word of the true king. Immediately, we're told in verse 23, an angel of the Lord struck Herod down because he did not give God the glory. Now, friends, if we're tempted to hear that whole description of Herod and think about how wicked he must have been to think of himself as a God in competition with the true God and how arrogant he must have been to raise his own uh, focus and attention to himself rather than anyone else. Well, let's just be reminded that what Herod here is, is an example of the natural tendency of the wickedness in all of our hearts. The Apostle Paul described the natural posture of all children of Adam, every human everywhere, when he wrote this in the opening chapter of the book of Romans. He said, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him but they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. This is a diagnosis of all humans everywhere, the natural posture of the human heart. In fact, scripture, Scripture teaches us elsewhere that even when sinners know that they are under God's judgment in their arrogance, they do not repent and give him glory. Revelation 16, 9. Both Herod and the people gathered around him that day epitomize God-rejecting, man-glorifying idolatry. Friend, if you think your worst sins are those that you don't want others to know about, then I think you're wrong about that. Our worst sins are those that everyone seems perfectly fine with. Our worst sins are the ones that we're happy to post on social media. Our worst sins are the ones that we're okay with because everybody else seems to be in the same boat we are. We live as ungrateful servants of the God of the whole world. We breathe God's air. We eat his food. We enjoy the comfort and camaraderie of his image bearers. And we think and act and talk like we are the masters of our own castles. We crave glory for ourselves. And we forget or even actively withhold the glory that only God deserves. We admire the sunrise just for the sake of the sunrise. We celebrate a matching balance sheet without glorifying God for his wisdom in the perfect logic and accuracy of numbers. We spend entire days and sometimes weeks living as though God does not exist, giving him no attention or thought much less glory for all that he does. Friends, we are more, much more like Herod in this passage, if we're honest with ourselves, than we would like to admit. And God judged and struck Herod on the spot for his arrogance, for his haughty heart, for his withholding glory from God. Verse 23 says, Immediately an angel of the Lord struck Herod down, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Luke is vague on the details of Herod's illness, except one. It was an angel or messenger of the Lord who brought the disease of death upon him. Luke is clear about that. So rather than speculate about, Herod, about how Herod died, it seems to me that we ought to aim hard to keep our minds focused on the fact that this was God's judgment. It was God's judgment, immediate, definite, and fatal. Now friends, we are very often tempted to think that because God hasn't judged me yet, he probably won't do it. Because God hasn't judged me where I've stood just yet, he's probably all right with my situation. This thinking is horribly mistaken. God's patience And kindness is great. He is a long-suffering God. But he will not let any sin go unpunished. Not mine or yours. The gracious and beautiful promise of the gospel is not that God has gone soft. Or that he doesn't care about sin. He's not as angry as he used to be. No, no, that's not the promise of the gospel. The beauty and the promise of the gospel is that the God to whom all glory and honor and praise is is due, he has been rejected and cast aside by his created things, me and you, and we deserve nothing but his justice and his wrath. And he will unleash it one day on all sinners everywhere. But in his kindness, in his exceedingly great mercy and grace, he has shown such things in sending his one and only son, Who is Jesus Christ, the Lord, who has actually lived the obedient life that you and I have not, but who was counted as guilty underneath the penalty of sin, the penalty of rebellion, the penalty of disobedience for all those for whom he died, such that when God looked at Jesus upon the cross, he saw him as the guiltiest sinner ever and unleashed his wrath upon him. So that when he looks upon guilty sinners like us, if we are found in Christ, if we love, if we trust, if we follow, if we obey this Lord who is the Savior, he no longer sees us as the guilty sinners we are. But as one song that I love so much says, there is nothing but grace now from the Father. There is no more wrath. It's exhausted." It's been poured out on Christ. So if we find ourselves being similar to Herod today. If we find ourselves being those who indeed are arrogant. Who are glory stealers by default. And if we're looking for a way of escape, God has provided one for us. May we run to Christ. The last bit, though, of this passage, as we look at uh, what Luke is doing with it. We see that though Herod, uh, the earthly and seemingly powerful king, though he raised himself up as a sort of rival to God himself, he died an embarrassing and degrading death. But verse 24 tells us something different about the true king. The word of God increased and multiplied this increase and multiply, this sort of phrase about what was happening with the word or kingdom of God, kingdom of Christ in the world, it's a way that Luke sort of closes down each one of the sections of the book of Acts. So for example, in Acts chapter six, verse seven, after Pentecost and after a threat to the church unity was was resolved from within, Luke says, the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Then in Acts chapter nine, verse 31, after uh, dramatically reduced the Jewish persecution against Christians by converting the chief persecutor, Saul or Paul, we're told uh, Luke says it like this in Acts chapter 9 verse 31, the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. The word and the kingdom of Christ are multiplying, prevailing all the way throughout the book of Acts. And finally, in Acts chapter 12, where we are today, this last uh, example of persecution, uh, opposition coming against the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. God strikes down the pagan king who lied, who laid violent hands upon the Christians throughout Judea. And Luke closes down this section by telling us the word of God increased and multiplied. Every step along the way, from threats within, from threats Uh, threats from Jewish leaders, threats from pagan earthly kings, the kingdom or church of Jesus Christ grows because the word of the true king always prevails. So much so that verse 25 is sort of a footnote to all of this, but it ends where chapter 12 begins. Look at it with me. Acts chapter 12 began with James martyred and Peter in prison. But it ends, in verse 25, with Barnabas and Saul returning to Antioch from Jerusalem after having completed their service, which was to bring financial relief to the church in Jerusalem. Barnabas and Paul, at the close of verse 11, of uh, chapter 11, were sent from Antioch to Jerusalem to bring financial aid. Luke tells us about all the turmoil that's going on there in Jerusalem. Herod the leader of this, known, this, this region of the world is unleashing violence against the church of Jesus Christ there in Jerusalem and in Judea, Barnabas and, and Paul return just fine. Mission complete. God's word prevails. Brothers and sisters, this does not teach us that we should expect to survive all earthly attacks, nor should we expect to outlive all rivals to Christians in this world. No, but we can expect that the true king and his kingdom, his people always prevail in the end. It is not for us to make war for Christ. It is not for us to be cunning political negotiators for Christ. Rather, it is for us to be his faithful servants and to be his enduring witnesses, even as we face difficult times. And we entrust ourselves just as Jesus exemplified to the true King who judges all things justly. May God help us to be just this sort of Christian in the world. Would you bow with me and let's pray. We trust that this message edified the listener and glorified the God who shows love and mercy to sinners in the person and work of Jesus Christ, his son. Would you take a moment to leave a positive rating for us on your podcast app? You'll be helping others find this episode and more like it. If you'd like more information about First Baptist Diana, then please visit our website, www.fbcdiana.org.